90s basketball was a lot of fun playing against these dudes. They absolutely brought it every night. Five, four, three, two, one. Hill puts it on the floor. And stops anybody down. He brought the whole goal down. Macombo embraces the ball and then unlikely upset. They're on their feet. A new NBA assist king, John Stockton. The crowd going crazy. To Michael, three, two, Michael, firing! Welcome everyone to the 90s Basketball Show. My name is Brian Swain. Thank you for joining me. And as we once again go back and take a look here on the 25th anniversary of the Toronto Raptors, I'm very excited to be joined now by someone who was there from the very beginning. He spent several years with the Raptors as Director of Scouting and then later as Director of Player Personnel. Jim Kelly, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing great today, Brian. Good to be with you. I'm very excited to get the chance to talk to you and get some of your memories. We've been talking to a lot of people who were there in the early days. And and you actually, as I understand, Jim, you were with the Raptors, one of their first hires. You were actually on board about a year or so before even they played their first game. Yeah, that was a, that was a strange year for scouting. Uh, this was a, a year before we had a team. And we uh, we had to prepare for what you call the dispersal draft, where NBA teams would, uh, I guess they would allot or leave out three or four contracts uh, per team. And then we had a draft. We drafted from them first, and then later on we drafted in the uh, college draft. So we had sort of double duty that year. Before we get into that, just reset a little bit. How was it that you first came to join the Raptors? Oh, boy. It, at the time uh, I joined the Raptors, um, I was in the Philippines. Uh, I was working in basketball there. I was coaching there. And uh, Bob Zuffalato, who would be with the Raptors for, I believe, 18 years, uh, Bob was my college coach. He asked me to come on a board, or would you like to try this out? It was sort of a uh, shakedown cruise that first summer. I remember talking to Isaiah. Uh, we're not going to offer any contracts. Uh, we are going to uh, you know, sort of go month by month and see where we are at the end of the summer. And uh, I could uh, remember vividly my first uh, assignment for the Raptors, uh, George Raveling was the coach of uh, a team called the uh, Goodwill Games, the USA Goodwill Games. And uh, that's where things started off with the Raptors. And I don't think we took any of those players, but that's usually the case with uh, scouting. You know, you look at a 1,000 players and maybe you take one. It must have been a fascinating process attempting to scout for the expansion draft. How do you even approach that? I mean, do you have a sense of which players might be made available? That was sort of a that was sort of a learning experience right into the NBA. Uh, we sort of picked off you know players with big contracts who would be uh, or not really playing all that much for their team, and it was sort of like a, a get out of jail free time for the uh, for the other teams in the league. They got to unload two or three of their 
highest contracts of players who weren't playing the most. So you sort of knew who they were going to load by halfway through the season or who was going to be in that pool of players there. Uh, and we scouted a lot on talent. But as most things happen in the NBA, uh, the draft basically came down to contracts and with the uh, worst contract being taken last and the uh, probably the least expensive being taken first there. At the same time, of course, I believe there was only about a week that separated, if that, maybe even just a few days that separated the expansion draft from the NBA entry draft in 1995. Um, what was your role in scouting? Were you focusing both on the professional end of things and the college end of things? Yeah, I think at that time we had everyone uh, scouting in your region. We didn't do as much travel as we did as, as uh, the years went on, but we had about... I'm thinking six or seven different scouts in different parts of the country. And we had a rule that uh, every week you had to see at least two NBA games as well as your college games there. And I always thought that was a good rule because you sort of kept a finger on the pulse of what makes an NBA player. Because a lot of times if you just look you know, consistently at college players, you, you realize that even guys in the middle to the end of the bench, they're pretty good players. And, uh, it's good to measure those skills against the college player skills. So that, that was a good learning experience. So where was your region as far as college goes? Oh, uh, well, I struggled. I went to San Diego. I had been familiar with San Diego. And uh, as luck would have it, uh, when I talked to Isaiah, we had no one who was on the West Coast and no one who had any international experience. And like I said, you had to be near – NBA team, so we had the two LA teams. I wasn't far from Phoenix or Golden State, and uh, I had done international. I had been a coach internationally for about 12 or 13 years before that, so I said I could do both, and that was sort of my attraction to get my foot in the door, and uh, that lasted for uh, 19 years. So that first year, preparing for that first season, you would have been probably seeing a lot of Pac-10 games? Pac-10 games, yeah, I might say mostly Pac-10. I, I don't think the Mountain West was around. Um, San Diego State wasn't that big of a school. That's probably the, uh, I would say, the biggest school out here right now. Uh, Utah was a pretty big school, as well as Colorado. You get to Colorado, you get some Big 12 games. I remember seeing Big 12 games there. Um, but uh, I'd say for the majority, it was mostly uh, – Pac-10 back, back in those days. Well, that's perfect then because, of course, the first draft pick in team history came right out of the Pac-10. And interestingly, a lot of who the fans probably wanted at that point in time also came out of the Pac-10. I'm talking David Stoudemire and then Ed O'Banney, who a lot of the fans were chanting for. Tell me a little bit about your perspective on David Stoudemire at that time, Jim, and also what ultimately led the team to make the decision, to, and obviously what was a very good decision, to draft him. Damon was a little mighty mite. I mean, he played with a big heart, could really score the ball, and I thought a very perceptive pick by Isaiah. Uh, you know, when you're sitting around the, the draft room, especially the first year you're in the draft, you're giving a lot of ideas, but you're not making a lot of decisions. And uh, I, I think the competitiveness of Damon, his ability to score the ball, and I think uh, – 
Isaiah liked the fact that he was a small guard a lot like himself there. I think he saw a little bit of himself in, in that comparison there. And I think those were the key reasons why we took him. Uh, I remember O'Bannon. O'Bannon was, I think, the fans' choice at that time. Uh, I, I could distinctly remember. I, I think there was, uh, let's call it a little, a few bluebirds out there when we took Damon, but uh, I think it turned out to be a better pick for us. Uh, O'Bannon, Ed O'Bannon, I think he became much more famous for the suit against the NCAA and try to get uh, college players signing rights or marketing rights on their names. And Damon not only was a good player, he's gone from the coaching, and I think he's a very good coach, an up-and-coming coach now at the uh, University of the Pacific. Yeah, no, for sure. Obviously, I mean, you guys certainly did make the right pick on that night. Ed O'Bannon only lasted a couple seasons in the NBA. I'd also like to get your quick thoughts then on the pool that you guys selected in the expansion draft. And, and just for our listeners here, I'm just going to quickly run down the, the uh, I believe it was 13 picks that you had, or 14 picks. is B.J. Armstrong, Tony Massenburg, uh, Andre Gebert, Keith Jennings, Antonio Wingfield, Doug Smith, Jerome Kersey, Jean Tabak, Willie Anderson, Ed Pickney, A.C. Earl, B.J. Tyler, John Sally and Oliver Miller. As you mentioned, there's a lot of different factors that go into why a player is available in the expansion draft and maybe what you're trying to get out of it when you take one of those players. Who of that group was maybe the uh, the key picks and, and ones that you were actually able to use building the team around or to flip for another asset? Well, you know, uh, it was probably two live players I thought who really played the most minutes. I remember it was uh, Tony Massenberg and B.J. Armstrong. And we wound up taking B.J. Armstrong. And this was sort of our, this was sort of our welcome to the NBA because you now in the beginning, uh, Vancouver and Toronto weren't exactly welcomed with open arms. And I can remember B.J. came up, I believe it was the day after the expansion draft. And he had a nice interview with all the uh, media, and we had great media in Toronto at that time saying how how proud he was and glad that the uh, Raptors had chosen him, and it was such such an honor, and he went on and on. And then he went in the room with Isaiah. He told Isaiah in so many words, I'm never going to play here, so you better trade me right away. But uh, that's how it went in the expansion draft. There were a lot of bizarre stories going on there. But uh, BJ did play another year or two in the league. I think Matsenberg actually outlasted him in the league by a couple more years. He did, yeah. Massenberg actually has a unique trivia. He's one of the four players that actually ended up playing for both the Raptors and the Grizzlies, so he's got that unique bit of trivia for him. Um, were there some players that had the opposite attitude to B.J. Armstrong that were willing to give this new market, this new country a chance to buy in? Oh, for sure. There, there was, uh, I remember South, uh, John Sally, he was he was very enthusiastic. Uh, do we have Zonta back? Wasn't he in the uh, draft? Uh, Ed Pickney? I mean, a lot of these uh, players coming up were, uh, you know, players that did well in college and never really got any traction when they started off in the NBA, and this was like a chance for them to get their career going. So, I mean, there were a lot of positive stories there, but I, I just remember the uh, the B.J. Armstrong story. I always thought that was funny as, as he came out of the press conference there. But uh, I do remember Quebec, very enthusiastic. Ed Pickney, who's still in the NBA, uh, John Talley, they they were all uh, they were all keen to come in to uh, come to Toronto. I do remember over those first few years, the Raptors made a, a lot of trades. Obviously, when I mean, you guys were trying to piece together what you were looking for, do you recall 
what maybe the organizational philosophy was at that time and what the identity was that you were trying to build and, and the qualities of a player. You know, when you made these transactions, what, what were maybe the, the defining things that informed each of these moves that you made and, and the overall driving philosophy and vision that Isaiah had for that group? You know, um, Isaiah had at, at, his, at, at that time, he had a phrase uh, for the type of player that we were looking for. And he was actually very much ahead of his time. He says we're looking for a raptor, okay? And we all said, what's a raptor? He goes, a raptor is a player who's got length, athleticism, and can play three different positions. And, uh, you know, he was looking for the modern day. You know, you kept looking for that one player. I remember we, had, we thought Doug Christie was going to be that player, and he was for a year or so. But, I mean, we were always – that was always the thing when you go out on the road. Tracy McGrady was going to be that player for us. Vince was probably more of a two-position, but he wanted to play three for us. He wasn't exactly a point guard. But I always remember that was Isaiah's thing. Did you see any Raptors out there? Did you look for any Raptors? And by Raptors, he meant a player who could play multiple positions, had length, and, uh, you know, was good on both ends of the court. And, uh, you know, when you're starting at the bottom, which we were – and uh, we were taking basically what was left over from the other teams. Uh, it wasn't an easy climb out, but uh, it was a challenging one, very challenging. When you look at those early years, Jim, who were the biggest players in building the culture in those early years? Well, you know, uh, for sure, uh, it took us a while to get some traction there, but when we got... Uh, Vince Carter, that, that was really sort of a pioneer move for us. Um, at that time, we were had sort of a, of a bad stigma. I don't know why, not for lack of love from the community, not from lack of hard work or organization, but we hadn't yet been accepted by the league. And I do remember uh, at that time, in order to get Vince or to get any North Carolina player, you had to go through uh, the head man there. And... Uh, he really wasn't so uh, wasn't so in tune with players going up to Toronto. That was a uh, you know that was an expansion team or something. And Vince sort of struck out and he said, "Wait a second here. Here's a here's a chance for me to make a name for myself in the market." Here was a player that we really wanted, and we had to make a draft day uh, trade to get that in there. Uh, and uh, even though Dean Smith didn't give his blessing. Vince came up here. We liked him. He hit it off great. And uh, he became probably the first player that we got here. And then we got T-Mac here. We got Tracy McGrady. And, and then it came slowly. It was, still a, it was still somewhat of a grind. But I think getting those two players in, uh, it took a couple of years. That, that sort of helped us get on the way, get on the road. And I think it really ignited the community to get behind us because they, they were a great attraction just to see. That's interesting that Dean Smith wasn't quite on board because you originally selected Antoine Jameson and flipped him for Vince, both North Carolina guys. Oh, we thought that was one of our – we had genius hats on that day because all along we wanted Vince, and we had let it be known for weeks before that we were going to take Jameson, and we knew that the, uh, the Warriors wanted Jameson. So we, we just let it be known that uh, we were going to take uh, – Antoine Jameson, and sure enough, they came to us, and 
we flipped the pick and we made some money on that trade too. And at that time, money was uh, was a key factor for us. But uh, that was uh, that was a big trade for us right there. We made with Golden State that day for sure. Looking back over your time there, are there any sleeper picks that you're most proud of? Where that kind of you guys took a flyer and you hit a home run on it. Sleeper pick. I don't know. If, well, Tracy Brady was definitely a sleeper pick. Uh, but, you know, it's not so much the one person who identifies a player in the draft. It was sort of a communal thing. If one person sees a, uh, if you see tr- Tracy McGrady at that time, you get to go to some high school games, and he was a young player there, and you saw he was good. You would make sure that two or three other players or two or three other scouts would go in and uh, make sure they watched, they watched him there. But they were good players for us, and uh, uh, I, I think over the over the course of time there, we, we got a good mix of players. We didn't quite get the traction that we were looking for and getting going. But I mean, it took a little bit longer. But for sure, the wheels are rolling up in uh, Toronto now. They got a good team. They got a good coach, and uh, they seem to be doing very well. The fans love them there, and that's that's that always was the potential in Toronto that we saw. Yeah, I know, and, and we'll get to this in a moment here. You're, of course, involved with the Mavericks now, but uh, are you able to look at what's going on there and take a little bit of a sense of pride in, in seeing what that team has become and knowing you were there building from the ground up? Definitely a little sense of pride. Definitely, uh, you know, Nick Nurse, I brought in Nick Nurse, one free agent camp uh, to watch our camp just so he would be exposed to us. He was one of the people that helped us out in Europe unofficially there. But uh, you always feel a bond after you spend so much time there. And like I said, the fans were always great there. They they wanted to win probably as much as any fans around. And it's it's good to see that they finally got rewarded. And to get a championship, boy, that's that's some of the hardest thing to get here in the NBA right now, to get a, a championship and not be one of the uh, New York's or L.A. or Miami teams. That, that's tough sledding there. For sure. Well, and you're involved with an organization now that uh, I don't know. I think a lot of people might be thinking might be having a championship coming their way in the next few years. You have a transcendent player, I think maybe a generational talent as part of that organization. But you're with the Mavericks now. How long have you been with them? Well, after I left uh, Toronto, I, I I went to Dallas. So this is uh, year six. Uh, I've been with uh, with them. I do. I don't do as much international scouting. I do more NBA and college scouting and. For sure, we got two two very talented players there, uh, Luca and the Zinger there. Uh, Luca is you're you're right. He's once in a generation talent there. Uh, I know the first time that he came into our uh, vet camp there, we're there for about two weeks, and every day he would do one thing in training camp that you would say, "How did he do that?" Either it was a shot or a pass, or he he would do something that just you you just did not see very often. And he has continued along that track there. He's uh, gotten himself in better physical shape. I think he understands the NBA more and more, and we're really fired up for this season. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, because uh, I'm really curious about this, Jim, is how the research and the data that's available for players now 
influences the decisions that you make as far as player personnel goes today versus, say, when you were first getting involved with the Raptors 25 years ago? Obviously, analytics has exploded since then. I'm not sure to what degree it existed. Certainly in, in the public realm, there was no such thing as advanced stats in 1995. I, I'm sure some teams had some internal things that amounted to, you know, rudimental advanced stats. But what were the biggest things that influenced and informed your decisions and you looked for back in 1995 compared to now? Well, we definitely looked for athleticism, scoring ability. And I think back then, rebounding was a much more important statistic than it is now. I think probably three ball or three, uh, three ball percentage probably has surpassed importance as to what rebounding was back then. But uh, I do remember back then, you know, you had all big, you had a lot of bigs who could protect the rim and who could rebound the ball. And it was always very important to out-rebound the other team as well as outscore them. And I think as we move forward now, uh, you know, the versatility of players playing multiple positions, the ability to shoot the ball from much farther out and to have a wide, a much, much more wide open floor has changed the game a great deal. Now, is this going to last forever? It's probably a good question. It probably outlasts me, but um, this is the change of the game. This is the direction that, uh, the game is going. And if you want to stay in the game, I think you have to be able to adapt to the new style player, what skills they have and what skills are needed for your team. Things have changed, that's for sure. Well, thanks very much, Jim. I appreciate your time, and best of luck to the Mavs this season. All right, Brian. Bye now. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our show archive at 90sbasketball.anchor.fm. And remember, you can catch the basketball show every Saturday on TSN 1260 Radio Edmonton from 11 to noon Mountain Time. And with that, I'm out. My name is Brian Swain, and this has been the 90s Basketball Show.